0: Welcome to the IJ4EU podcast. I'm Timothy Large.
1: And I'm Elitza Militeć.
0: And we're both from the International Press Institute, where we have the pleasure of running the IJ4EU Fund, which supports cross-border investigative journalism in Europe.
1: The clue is in the name, IJ4EU, Investigative Journalism for Europe.
0: Today's episode takes us almost a 1,000 kilometers away to Sudan. And this is a story that's going to connect the dots between the European Union's obsession with migration and the ongoing conflict in Sudan, which is now threatening to spiral into a civil war. And to talk about this, we have two very special guests, and we'll introduce them in in just a minute. But first, at the risk of keeping our guests and also our listeners waiting, I just wanted to very quickly reflect on the fact that Quite a few of the investigations supported by IJ for EU recently have actually taken us outside of Europe, to far-flung places. Uh, I think that's a notable development.
1: Yeah, that's that's exactly two things that I noticed is like when you look at all the investigations and projects supported by IJ for EU fund, it's just so obvious that these stories are truly cross-border. Corruption, migration, climate, environmental issues, pollution, they simply do not stop at the border. Bad guys don't stop at the border. And for that reason, investigative journalists themselves do not stop at the border. They have to travel sometimes really far to cover that story and to bring it to European audience.
0: Let's not keep our very patient guests waiting any longer. Uh, we are thrilled to be joined by two journalists whose work really does take them across borders to distant places. And they've worked on a really fascinating investigation, which is, been, is titled The EU's Pact with the Devil. One of the journalists is Lenoir, uh mm-hmm. who started. Hello there. Welcome to the show.
2: Thank you.
0: Be quite frequently in in Africa. You've been supporting on Sudan for many years.
2: Yeah, I'm yeah. covering uh, East of Africa. I'm covering Middle Eastern, East of Africa for so many years. And of course, my problem now is that I cannot go to Sudan anymore for the moment because of the war. So yeah. uh, the entry in Sudan is forbidden uh, to uh, to journalists, foreign journalists. So it's one of um, my
0: um, problem, I'd say. Indeed, and as I'm sure we'll discuss, it's a problem that must have impacted this investigation and <laughs> just access to to Sudan. But it's great to have you on the show.
1: And we also we also have mm. Patricia Warren. Hello, oh. uh, Patricia is a bit less visible. I would say the camera the camera is off, but Patricia. She is an experienced journalist reporting from sub Saharan Africa for more than a decade. Um, she regularly reports from Sudan. Um, she covers migration. She is a freelancer and she often writes for the New Humanitarian. Hi, Patricia. Welcome. Hi, thank you. I want to say nice
3: to see you.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nice to hear yeah.
3: you. <laughs> nice to hear you. Technical issue. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm in South Africa at the moment, where I've been living oh, for 14 years, and uh, I'm in Port Elizabeth, which is by the coast.
0: appreciate both of you taking time to talk a little bit about the recent investigation you've done about Sudan. It's a story that connects, as I said, the European Union with a former Sudanese dictator and a current warlord with presidential ambitions. Where on earth do we begin with this?
2: Okay, first of all, I, I, I would like to, um, to to precise that Sudan is uh, that Europe, EU, is quite obsessed by Sudan on the, the, the migration topic. Because of what? Because Sudan is um, a, a country of transit uh, for people coming from all, the, all North Africa to Europe. I mean, Ethiopia, Eritrea, Somalia, to uh, to europe they cross sudan before reaching libya okay it's also uh, um it's also a, a, a country of uh, departure uh, because sudan is uh, unfortunately for this country is a very it's a very poor country and it's a country who who um knows, was for for decades now so um i discovered the, the this obsession i mean um a few few years ago and I discovered that after the the Valet Summit in uh, 2015, uh, EU decided to um, help to support the Sudanese authorities, Sudanese government at that time, to stop migration. At that time, the Sudanese authorities were held by a guy called Omar al-Bashir. Omar al-Bashir is uh, one of the... Let's say best dictator around the, the, the planet and um, uh, is indicted uh, by the, the international um, court for genocide. So I discovered that uh, EU was supporting a guy indicted of genocide. Which is quite a problem, I mean. In 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 order to stop migration, obviously,
3: because that's always been like one of the main issues. Like even when we were there in Sudan, like talking to diplomats based there at the time in Khartoum, there was there were two points that would come back very often it was like uh, fighting against um, radical islamism and terrorism which also like sudan can be an important country for and migration so so basically europe and that started as when i said it from the time of omar al bashir started to close their eyes on whatever the regime was as long as it could help Europe not having too many migrants going through Sudan and also yeah, the fight against uh, radical Islamism.
0: Just, I just want to back up for one second to kind of put Omar al-Bashir in perspective because just for some of our listeners who may not be too familiar with this, um, Just, you mentioned genocide. Um, you mentioned that he was indicted by the International Criminal Court for crimes against humanity and genocide. And some of our older listeners may may remember back in the early 2000s when Darfur and Western Sudan was very much in the news and the word Darfur and genocide almost became synonymous. Bashir was very much the dictator um, who presided over a a war in in Darfur with some pretty nasty characters who were known as the the Janjaweed, weren't they? Mm -hmm. Um, They were uh, mostly recruited from nomadic tribes in in Darfur and the region, and they did some terrible things. And from those, from their ranks, the... These paramilitaries that were kind of acting as proxies for Khartoum uh, formed the so-called Rapid Support Forces, or the RSF. That's the kind of the backdrop.
2: Yeah, because you, you mentioned you mentioned the Janjaweed. Um, the Janjaweed um, were led and uh, they are still led by a guy who is called uh, Mohammed Dagalo, uh, Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo, and this guy is known also with the nickname of Hametti. Hebeti is one of the war- two warlords who um, were really uh, destroying Sudan since uh, since uh, April uh, this year. Um, so these Janjaweed have have been used by um, on 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 the behalf of of Europe actually have been used by uh, Omar al-Bashir as um, border guards. So they were in charge of stopping migration on behalf of Europe.
0: Okay, let, let's just pause for a second to, to take that in. So you're saying that, in a sense, Europe's proxy border guards were these nasty Janjaweed paramilitary forces I'm known saying, for war crimes I, and genocide.
2: I am saying exactly that. Um, Omar al-Bashir, Put this Janjaweed in charge of the border, and by putting this Janjaweed in charge of the border, Janjaweed or RSF, if you prefer, now the same guys anyway. By char- by putting them in charge of the border, that uh, Omar al-Bashir put them in charge of stopping migrants, and it was on the behalf of Europe. It was with the technical support of Europe. Some in Sudan, some people in Sudan say it was even, um, I mean, uh, uh, money support. But we, we don't have any evidence of that. Um, so we, we so this is it's it's a, an indirect support from Europe uh, to to RSF. But it it's perhaps it's indirect, but it's a real one. I mean, RSF wouldn't be this military armed force uh, today if it hadn't had no the support of Europe before and well, the diplomatic support also because HEMETI has been, um, I mean, hosted by all the European ambassadors. I, I, I think we have to go back a little bit like to understand
3: how it reached that point. So what happened is that like under the regime of Omar al-Bashir, el- el- there was a rebellion in Darfur. And uh, as Bashir did with other rebellions too, like including in South Sudan before the independence, um, he basically led like a proxy war. So he armed those Arab nomad militias to fight his war. And obviously they had their own interests also because they were long-time conflicts for, you know, land, access to resources, power, whatever. And uh, and that's how it led to the Janjaweed and and massacres and rape and villages being burned. And then, um, still under the regime of Bashir, the Djanjavid somehow, because they led this war and also because they gained in power, they started to obtain some more official functions. And one of them was actually guarding the border. I mean, those guys—they know the desert. That's where they're from. The area, like between Sudan and Libya, that's that's where they thrive. The desert—it's their place. Um, and so, Europe was asking Sudan to stop migration, then kind of pretending not to know. Let's say. It's like, okay, we're not not dealing with the Janjaweed, as they still kept on saying for years afterwards when the RSF, the Rapid Support Forces, became more official. And it's like, no, 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 we're not financing them directly. We're not dealing with those guys. But then who's in charge of the border? It's them. So how can you say you're not dealing with those guys if they are the ones doing the job that you want to be done?
1: But sorry for jumping in, how does that actually work? This pact with the devil, the agreement, what is, what did Europe commit to? What, what, what do we get? What do we give? Uh, Is it, are we talking about the money? Are we talking about equipment or training? How, what is the plan? How exactly do they expect the migration to stop?
2: Okay. There is a, there is a body who has been um, decided in the Lavalette summit is called cartoon process. Through this cartoon process, you have exchange of information between uh, Sudanese authorities, uh, or North Africa uh, police, uh, and Europe. Um, You have Interpol, for example, inside this cartoon process. So you have exchange of information, you have training, you have, they provide also equipment, like computers, for example. And of course, for example, Euro, Europe says, okay, the computers, it's only uh, for, um, for uh, finding out the false documents. Uh, all right, but again, when you have migrants transiting through Sudan, they don't go through airport, they go, they go through the desert. So it's mm. not, it's not the, aer- the airports are not important, I mean. The training is not for the airport, or if it is for the airport, it's just a very, very, very tiny uh, aspect of, of, of the, the cooperation. And so, uh, again, we, we don't have any evidence about money. Um, a lot of people told us about money in Sudan, but we don't have any evidence of that. But there has been some training, there has been technical cooperation and uh, through um, through a body uh, which is called um, uh, EU Trust Fund for Africa. And the problem with this EU Trust Fund for, for, for Africa is that it's not clear at all. And all the people we interviewed in uh, European Parliament told us that they can, they, they, they didn't succeed to have to have the clear information about uh, about the use of the money of this EU trust fund.
3: It, it's mm. also besides financial support and technical support, which did happen, like they have been trainings, um, even even training about human rights, but like if, if you are training some units, who have been accused of massive human rights abuses, then isn't it still problematic? But then, besides that, it's also about the rise of Hemeti himself, the well, Let's Hemeti.
0: Let's talk about Hemeti for a minute. And again, just to bring things up to date here. Um, so th- this cartoon process that you mentioned was with Omar al-Bashir. Um, but, of course, it, in 2019, he was deposed in a coup d'etat. And the, the man who takes power at that time is General Abdel Fattah al burham who today leads the National Army. And several years later, so bringing it right up to date to 2023, this year in April, as you say, fierce fighting breaks up. And that's between the Sudanese army and the Janjaweed, the, the RSF. And this devastates Khartoum, it creates chaos in Darfur again, and it threatens to plunge Sudan in, into civil war. Now, Hemeti is, is, as the leader of the RSF, is essentially at war with General al for It's a power struggle, isn't it? That's what's going on right now. So to what extent is Hemeti a man created by Europe? Does Europe have any blame for his his role in all of this?
3: You definitely cannot say that uh, Europe built him uh, at all. But what happened, and, and there's also, and I think it's important to mention, like there's no good guy in the story, like uh, the General al is leading the, the National Army is it, it, not either uh, clean of any... Uh, abuses so um but so hemeti was like the second person in ranking in the council that was leading sudan and um and what what happened is that he was basically received by all european diplomats in place in Khartoum, and not only European diplomats, American, and uh, and the UN, and uh, so um, actually I, w- I was speaking with a Sudanese journalist when I was in Khartoum last time, and he was saying they basically treated him as a head of state like, on the same rank than Pohan, who who was, well, he was the the first ranking guy, but he wasn't either officially elected or anything, but, like, so the diplomat definitely treated Hemekti like uh, uh, someone who really mattered, and he did. But So it was like, okay, we're meeting Bohan on one side, we're meeting Hemeti on the other side because we need to know what he thinks. And Hemeti, um, from uh, people who know him or what is being said about him, is is someone that is looking for recognition. He's been looked down at by by previous regime, by people in Khartoum who see it like a herdsman, basically like a guy who was just taking care of camels in the rural areas, uh, not sophisticated to speak Arabic with an accent. And um, so the fact that he was given that status somehow, we are convinced that he contributed to making him believe that he could be that person and lead Sudan.
0: So again, the the European Union has some blood on its hands for a sense of legitimizing a guy who's essentially a, a terrible warlord uh, and to the extent that he believes he, he could be president of Sudan, a leader of Sudan. Is, is that what you're saying?
2: Yeah, what, what, what happened when, when during the, the, the revolution uh, of 2019, um, uh, what happened is that, okay, um, both Bohan and Hemeti um, took the power in place of um, Omar al-Bashir, okay, and then uh, as Patricia said, there's no good guy in the story. What happened is that um, Hemetis succeeded to um, make the, part of the people believing, I mean, part of the diplomats believing that he was in favor of the revolution, which was totally false, I, I mean, and everybody could see it. But I think that we think that the the, the the, the, Westerns, uh, the Western countries, the Western diplomats, um, did want to see him as an alternative to the former regime. And, uh, and what was important also is that he was saying, okay, we stop the migration, and we will continue to stop migration on your behalf. That is something very central. But uh, you know, uh, European—they're uh, uh, not really proud of this, and so they <laughs> well, I imagine. say it. I mean.
0: Well, I was going to ask you what uh, you know when you put these allegations to to Brussels, to the European Commission. W- what is the response? I mean, they
2: deny. They uh, deny.
0: Total denial. Right. They uh, say we
2: don't deal with RSF. We don't deal we with do that. Deal with we don't seven. deal with those guys. Right. But, of course, even if they don't deal with them in a direct way, they deal with them because they gave support to um, to authorities, to a government, to a state who stopped migration on the behalf of Europe and who use RSF and Hemeti for stopping them. And we know also that Hemeti and the, 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 the men of Hemeti, RSF, are part of the trafficking. They're trafficking themselves.
0: They're part of the trafficking of yes. people to Europe. Yes,
2: yes. I mean, if you, if you, 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 you speak to migrants, you will see that, um, okay, you are, if you are stopped by RSF, at the border or before the border in the desert, if you pay, you cross.
3: Well, now now it's going to be the same with the Sudanese police or Sudanese custom, or it's like that's just how it works. If you pay, you cross. But the
2: the difference is that it's mainly RSF. Who's in charge of acting at the borders. Definitely. And, uh, but like, Up
3: to now, because, yeah, as Gwen said, like when she went to speak to people in Brussels, they just denied, no, we don't speak to them. But until today, like with the war raging in Sudan, Hemeti has people touring the world and including European countries. Not only, like also he has people going to other African countries and to... Talk like political advisors, communication, communication guys, PR, um, and trying to change his Im- image and and basically portray him as someone who could do good for Sudan. And um, what well, we concluded the investigation a while ago, so that's not something I could comment on right now but I wouldn't be surprised that now in the last few weeks or months maybe that the RSF in Sudan in the war has been gaining actually more and more territory in the recent weeks uh, to control of all the major cities in Darfur so obviously Hamet is staying relevant because at some point he might be the guy in power in Sudan and we haven't heard many European countries up to now saying, oh, no, but we're not going to speak to him because he's accused of this or that. Like, for now, it's like nothing official either. Nobody said we are speaking to him, but nobody made a statement the other way either.
0: I, I know it's impossible to do any crystal ball gazing, but what do you think is going to happen in Sudan? If you had to... Place a bet.
2: Um, okay, news are very um, dark, very very dark. Uh, well, the situation, especially in Darfur, is uh, is really uh, catastrophic. I mean, with the massacre and uh, and war crimes in the, in very large, very large scale. Uh, even more than in than okay. during the first war in in, in, um, in Darfur.
0: Even more than the first ago. war. Yes, That's, yes, yes. And this and is a completely now, neglected crisis. Completely, t- we never hear about it.
2: Nobody cares about that. But you know, twenty years ago, during the first war in Darfur, the 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 main it was it was a story of village of burned villages. Now it's a story of burned cities. So the scale is really um, larger. Um, the situation in Khartoum is—I um, mean, the the ground in Khartoum is hold by RSF. The air is held by the national army. Uh, so you have—I don't—I don't have the figure in uh, in mind, but uh, you have—I don't know how many how many millions of people displaced many millions of people refugees abroad the the country is split into two parts at the east uh, you have national army and the former regime who's back regime over uh, the, the, the 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 guys of um of omar bashir and of the islamist regime are back um, supported by national army and backing each other let's say on the west And south, it's RSF. And so, um, we are speaking more and more about the split, another split of Sudan. There has been a third split in 2011, north, south. And now we are speaking about a new split in North Sudan between east and west, which is, I mean, it's catastrophic.
0: It is cat- catastrophic, and it, you must be tearing your hair out at how little attention this is getting from the, the world. We never it's hear about It's a shame.
2: Sudan. I mean, it's, it's really a shame because it's um, Sudan is a man- major country for 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 the balance of uh, of Africa, and uh, and as we've seen, as our investigation shows, it's also a major country for the balance of Europe. And I mean, on the border you have Libya. Libya is—I uh, mean, there is no state anymore in Libya. So if you you have the same thing in Sudan, what will happen in this region, and what will happen for Europe? It's very, it's very dangerous. Not only for Sudanese, of course. Our—I mean, I and Patricia, we know Sudan. We like this country. We like these people. So it's 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 really heartbreaking. But Beside that, it's it's a quite dangerous conflict for Africa and for Europe.
0: Well, I hope your investigation goes some way towards elevating the profile of this neglected emergency in the world press.
3: I I I also reported when I was in Chad uh, for the New Humanitarian about the. Um, humanitarian crisis, basically, and how NGOs are completely overwhelmed by by the number of refugees and the lack of interest and the lack of funding it's Like um, um, WFP, the World Food Program, is saying, like just right now, that they can feed people until the end of the year, and it's already. Really, really not enough. Most people I met when I was there in September had received only one, like one ratio of food since they arrived. It's uh, malnutrition is terrible among children, and WFP doesn't know for next year if they can still feed people. It's so it's an absolute. Humanitarian disaster.
0: I mean, I'm just in a state of shock to hear you say that this is worse than the situation was in 2003, 2004, the early 2000s, when Darfur was very much on the on the global con on the map. People were very aware of it. There were celebrities doing you know all kinds of campaigns for Darfur. What a difference today! What a what an incredible silence we have here do, do you think that the uh, what's going on in in israel uh, gaza with hamas is that distracting from it or is there just wh- how do we probably, explain this
2: so probably but not only not only um anyway uh, i i think that our our task as as journalists Is to um, investigate, uh, to 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 continue to uh, to investigate about this country, about what's happening there, about what's happening in Darfur, because uh, contrary to what happened in twenty in 2003, we have a lot of videos, a lot of materials. We have testimonies, we have videos, we, have, we can investigate. And some um, Sudanese uh, organizations, international organizations are collecting evidences of those massacres. And we have to uh, show this, we have to work on this, we have to show this. We, we cannot stay silent about this. That's what we, we want to work with Patricia on. It's We have to continue to work on Sudan.
3: Because there's a total blackout, obviously, because no international media allowed. There are some Sudanese journalists who like, very, very bravely still manage to do some work in Darfur, but it's incredibly dangerous for them. And, and even getting the information out is difficult as well for lack of proper communication. NGOs, the UN, they are, well, they managed to organize a few missions, a few convoy, but it, it's very, very limited. So there's basically no no one to witness what's happening there.
0: It's an extraordinary story. Well, I think we're coming to the end of our time here, but thank you so much for for telling us about it. Um, it certainly opened opened my eyes, and congratulations on on the work you've done, uh, despite the very difficult challenges of, of reporting on Sudan right now. So, uh, unless there's anything else you'd like to add or any questions you have, Milica.
1: No, I just. Just wanted to wish you good luck with chasing and covering the devil and the pact <laughs> made with him.
3: No, and obviously we also wanted to thank IJ for you because without that it wouldn't have been possible to, yeah. to do that
2: investigation. Yes, it's very it's very important to have uh, time to investigate and time, as everybody knows, is money. And so it's important to to have the support of uh, IG for EU because we have been able to as we are both freelancers. So it's it's uh, for for us it's uh, it's not easy to uh, to uh, to find time, and so it was very important for us.
0: Well, thank you. We're very glad to hear that IG for EU could could be of help. So Gwen and Patricia, thank you very much and best of luck with everything.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much.
0: And that brings us to the end. So stay tuned for the next episode of the IJ4EU podcast coming soon to a streaming platform near you.